Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine, and we have a very special talk show for you today. We're here on the morning of the Dewar Trophy and Sims Medal presentations, and we're joined by Williams Chief Technical Officer, Pat Simmons, who is also on the committees for both of these awards. So we'll be talking a little bit more about those in a bit, um, but before... Before we go anywhere, uh, I must introduce Joe Dunn, our acting editor of Motorsport Magazine. Welcome, to Joe. Hello, Ed. Thank you. And a very warm welcome to Simon, our features editor. I, Good morning. There's a little bit of uh, cold air in this room this morning, having made everyone turn up an hour and a half early to this podcast, so I apologise for that again. <laughs> we are now here. Um, Pat, a very warm welcome, and thank you for joining us at the correct time. <laughs> My pleasure. Now, for those of you that need a little bit more information on Pat, he joined Tolman back in the early 1980s, which was then taken over by Benetton. He soon became technical director, and the team was taken over by Renault. He has since worked at Virgin Racing, and is now, as I said, the chief technical officer at Williams. Now, as I said, we're going to talk about the Dewar Trophy and the Sims medal in a bit, um, but what I really wanted to talk about actually to start with, because we've got loads of readers' questions, are the 2017 cars. Could you just quickly outline exactly what the big changes are for, for those that don't already know? Okay, well, I, I think it's probably worth looking at the criteria that were set to, um, to really precipitate the change in rules. And that was a, a perception, um, I think mainly from Bernie, that the cars were too easy to drive and they were too slow. Now, of course, they have got slower, it's a fact, because they've got much heavier. And historically, because of the rate of development in Formula One, it's been necessary for the rule makers to um, bring the performance back, normally by putting more and more aerodynamic restrictions on. So it's very interesting in 2017, for, for the first time, we're actually going the other way. And they've asked us to put performance on the cars. Um, not something I've been able to do before, so quite exciting, actually. Um, so how have we done it? Well, two ways. Uh, one is to increase the tyre width, uh, and the second is to really revamp the bodywork regulations quite substantially. Um, the cars are wider to go with the wider tyres. Uh, there is a, a lot more freedom in the architecture of the bodywork, in the aerodynamics that we can apply. There's a lot more areas of freedom. There's still a lot of regulation, don't, don't get me wrong, and um, regulation that I think you know, will, as always, make cars look very similar because um, so, many of the, 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 so much of the desi design space is already constrained by, by Article 3, the infamous Article 3 of the technical regulations. But nevertheless, <coughs> um, I actually think the cars look very attractive. 
Uh, I was very worried they were going to look very retro, and I don't think that would have been a good thing. But actually, they look rather good. Um, the the wide tyres suit the car. Uh, I think you know the current cars where the the front and rear tyre width is so similar looks odd in my my view. So now uh, they've both the front and the rear have gone wider, but the the rear more so. And the the styling cues, and I have to call them that, that have been written into the regulations actually work quite well. So I think cars are quite attractive. There's a, there's a question here from Frank Lammy about how the, the cars are going to look. So we've obviously sort of covered that. Um, he also alludes to something that I want to ask about. Are you worried about the racing with these new aero rules? Because I'm, I'm no expert, but the more aero you put on, the, the harder it is to follow a car and therefore be close yeah. enough to overtake. I think that's a, that is a generalisation and it's a, a true generalisation. And, and I think the answer to Frank is that no one knows. And I think that's one of the very unfortunate things about Formula One is that we will move into new regulations really without enough thought going into them. Now, of course, sometimes it doesn't need a, a great deal of thought. Sometimes, uh, for example, with the safety regulations, a great deal of work goes in before, before the regulations are written. But many of the sporting and, shall we say, the sort of holistic technical regulations are done, in my opinion, without enough research behind them. And the trouble is there's no mechanism for that research. So when you say, okay, is a 2017 car going to be uh, easier to overtake with, well, no one knows. And it's a shame because I think with a, a sport like we have, a global sport, a, a sport that has an awful lot of cash in it, I think we really should be setting up something that does research these sort of things and gives us a much more long-term view. You know, particularly this year, we've been very, very knee-jerk uh, in a lot of the regulation changes that we've done. Can I just ask, from the calculations and analysis you've done so far, how much more load is it likely to be on the tyres next year with the extra aero? Well, um, let me answer it first by, by saying that, you know, I think we're going to see the capability to produce downforce increase by about 25%. That sounds like a bit of a roundabout answer, doesn't it? Because, um, and the reason I say it that way is that we are going to see something that we haven't seen for a little while. Uh, really, certainly since 2009, we have pretty well run our cars on, on maximum downforce everywhere. Now, obviously we don't at Monza, we don't in Canada and uh, a few other places, uh, Spa maybe. But generally speaking, we're running with as much downforce as we can get on the cars. Um, the drag coefficient is acceptable at all but those few circuits. The inherent drag in the 2017 cars is greater. You know, they're, they're producing more downforce, they've got bigger tyres, and tyres are terrible for, for drag. And the optimization of downforce and drag will vary a lot more from circuit to circuit than it has done. So while we may have the capability of putting 25, maybe even a bit more than that, uh, percent more downforce on the car, we won't necessarily use that everywhere. So we'll see a lot more different configurations. Um, the actual loading on the tyres, yes, it, it, it can increase. Uh, it probably will increase. It, it, well, it certainly will increase. Um, we are doing a lot of uh, simulation at the moment, all teams, 
And uh, every couple of months, we send all our simulations in a prescribed form to the FIA. The FIA then go through them and pass them on to Pirelli so they know what they're dealing with. And of course, there's a testing campaign going on with Mercedes, uh, Ferrari and Red Bull, um, where they have made some mule cars, we call them. They're, they're actually 2015 cars that have been modified to attempt to produce the, the levels of downforce that we'll be dealing with next year, but done in a very different way, done in a way that doesn't, uh, wouldn't comply with the regulations next year. Uh, and those cars are out all around Europe at the moment, soon to, to go to the Middle East, um, testing tyres and uh, finding out whether our simulations are indeed accurate. There's so many people I speak to, and a lot of people in the questions have, have referred to it, is that the general belief is that you want to increase mechanical grip and not aerodynamic grip for exciting racing. And we seem to be going down this avenue of more aero and and okay, I, I guess we're going to have more uh, mechanical grip as well, but it, if Pat Simmons was in charge and writing these regulations, what would, in order to create a better spectacle, what, what would you be looking at? Well, firstly, you say we're going to have more mechanical grip, and I think you know, most people assume that because we've got uh, wider tyres. And if you looked at the sort of ratio of widths, you'd think, yes, there's going to be a lot more mechanical gra grip. Uh, in reality, we're not expecting a lot more there will be more, but probably more in the order of sort of 5% or something like that. Um, because while the contact patch is wider, it's not actually as long. The tyres are a slightly bigger diameter. Uh, and therefore, we won't get all the grip that one might assume if you just look superficially at the dimensions of the tyres. Now, you, you say that what we want is more mechanical grip and less aerodynamic grip. Now, we've talked about aerodynamics. But here again, we, we come to one of these unproven myths. You know, why do we want more mechanical grip? What evidence is there? I think that if you look at good racing, you often see good racing in the rain, don't you? You see good racing in the rain because the cars are very difficult to drive, they're very low grip, it's easy to make a mistake, you've got long braking zones, things like that. So I'm not convinced that actually more mechanical grip uh, per se gives you better racing. Um, no grip, no aero, lots of power. I'm sure that would be good racing. Bring back steel brakes. <laughs> steel <laughs> brakes, I'm afraid, probably have the performance of carbon brakes these days, or certainly some steel brakes do. Just taking both those things together, the tyres and the aerodynamics, um, what do you think the uh, cars will be like to drive? I mean, what will the effect on the drivers be? There's been a suggestion that they might be more difficult and certainly pulling more G. Uh, they will be pulling more G. Um, I don't think they'll be particularly difficult to drive. The steering loads are going up a little bit, but you know, the Formula One car has power steering, uh, and we'll simply compensate on that. You know, the, I, I spoke earlier on about this premise that what we wanted to do was to make the cars five seconds quicker. I, I never understood why, but nevertheless, that's what it was decided. Now. If you think about that, um, what does it really mean? I is a car that's five seconds lap quicker more exciting? Is it more difficult to drive? Well, I think you know you see the answer every Friday when we go out in in second practice. We all do the same thing. We all run uh, two sets of tyres. We run them first on quite low fuel. Then we fill the cars up with fuel to have a look at the race performance. The difference in lap time is about four seconds. You know, not far off. 
there are some circuits um, where I think you know this this year we've actually lapped around five seconds quicker than we did uh, a couple of years ago. And does anyone really notice it? You know, it's not the lap time per se. I, I think if you want Formula One to be the the pinnacle of motorsport, there is an argument that on any given circuit, a Formula One car ought to be the fastest lap time that, that can be achieved at that circuit. But that's only uh, a perception thing. You know, it's not necessarily spectacle. Um, you know, what, what's more spectacular around Silverstone, British touring cars or a Formula One car? Um, I'm sure there'd be many people who would probably not go with my branch of the sport. <laughs> After, I mean, when, when the, the hybrid cars first raced in 2014, I have to say, the first time I saw them in action in Barcelona, um, I was I actually really liked watching them. I mean, all right, the sound thing, I was in the minority. I, I didn't mind being able to hold a conversation trackside. I thought it was quite good. Um, but because they had so much talk, I mean, they were they were moving around. And all, but this is before they'd been properly developed. They were actually great to watch, I thought. I mean, they weren't as quick as the you know, previous cars had been around the corners. But just because the, the power was being distributed in a different way, they look, and all of the drivers you could actually see were working, and that's obviously with developments over the past couple of seasons, they're now a little bit more refined. But uh, that sort of the, the rawness of that first year, I actually thought was quite good. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I, I saw exactly the same thing when we were testing in in Barcelona. Um, we had a lot more talk than we'd ever had before. Uh, the talk was smoother than it used to be on the V8s and the V10, so that did make the cars a little bit easier to drive. And actually, it, one thing that has developed a lot in the last couple of years is the, the torque curve on these current hybrid engines is, uh, is fantastic. You know, it's, it's like road car torque. It's so smooth now. And, of course, that's made them a little bit less mm. spectacular to drive. Um, but I agree. You know, w what you want to see is a car moving around, I think. You want to see... Um, I, I've drawn the parallel before, but when, when I watch a, on television, I watch a rally driver, I, I have so much respect. I think, wow, you know, I couldn't do that. And I've tried, believe me. <laughs> um, but when you watch a very well set up Formula One car, there's not enough steering correction. There's not enough. It, it, don't get me wrong. They are incredibly difficult to drive. They're more difficult to drive, and there's no way any of us could drive one competitively. But it doesn't look that way. And it, it would be nice to see them moving around a little bit more, as we did in, in early 2014. I agree. Do, do you think that will be the case come beginning of next year? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I really don't. I think you know we're going to have a bit more grip. Um, the engines get ever more sophisticated, the power units. Um, you know, we continually use the electrical power um, more and more seamlessly in with the the power from the internal combustion engine. And uh, really, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing bit of engineering, don't get me wrong. They are absolutely fantastic, these power units. Uh, I just five, ten years ago, I wouldn't have believed that we could get the efficiencies and the drivability that we're getting from these engines. It, it is amazing that the, the rate of improvement of, of the hybrids. Um, well, Mark Hughes actually did a piece for the Motorsport website quite recently uh, on the direction of Formula One, and he was arguing that obviously, you know, the hybrid decision was slightly made in order to tie in what, with what manufacturers were looking at and things like that. And it's become very apparent that electric cars seem to be the way that a lot of 
manufacturers are going at the moment. And Formula One really is not going to become electric. So should Formula One be tying itself to what the road car industry is looking at, or should it go out on its own and be spectacular um, and excite fans and make drivers sort of want to jump in the cars and, and drive them properly? I, I read Mark's article, as I, I always do. Um, Mark writes very, very well indeed. Um, I think that there, there are two aspects to this. And you have to just set the scene a little bit. Now, if you go back to the time we were, we were talking about um, introducing these engines, and although they did come in in 2014, uh, originally they were targeted at 2013, and we started talking about them in 2008, 2009, something like that. Yeah, 2008, I'd say, we started talking about them. Now, in 2008, the political scene was so different to today. Um, there was an awful lot of concern about security of energy supply, problems in the Middle East, um, fracking, shale, gas, etc. hadn't really taken off in America. Um, fuel prices were very high. I think we were, ooh, I'm guessing now, $130 a barrel or something like that in, in, the, in those days. Uh, everything pointed to the fact that we should be looking at more efficient engines and and the quick way to efficiency is hybridization there's no doubt about it it's not just in motorsport we've seen it in in road cars as well at the same time um you know we were riding a an economic bubble um which was shortly to burst and of course you know in in 2008 the manufacturers were selling a lot of cars in spite of oil prices Profits were high, sponsorship was good, um, life was, was great. Uh, and then, of course, things changed. Uh, motor industry took a, an enormous hit in the recession, as did advertising budgets. And suddenly, you know, Formula One was now committed to this path of what was going to be an expensive power unit. It didn't need to be, and I think there were some mistakes made along the way where I, I hate to say it, but I think the engineers were given too much free rein. I think we could it's have produced a disaster a, when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> um, I think yeah, we could have produced a very sophisticated hybrid unit, uh, perhaps not as sophisticated, but at significantly lower cost. Um, but by the time, of course, that engine came into use, or that power unit came into use, life had changed, uh, and that's a fact. But look at it the other way. What would have happened if we hadn't done it? You know, if we had continued racing these gas-guzzling V8s or the V10s or, or whatever, I think people would have been looking at us and saying, you know, I, I, are you socially responsible? Is, is your CSR programs, you know, how can they sit alongside doing this type of activity? And I think we did the right thing. Now... The other interesting thing, and you, when you talk about the motor industry, is that in those days, and, and you can go back a little bit further, when we first introduced the Kurs system, which was a, a very mild hybridization compared to, to what we're doing now, uh, I think at that time the perception amongst motoring enthusiasts, and I, I would include myself, um, and the, in fact I would call it a misconception, was that hybridization was for the Toyota Prius, it was for 
you know, people who didn't have enthusiasm about driving, all they were interested in was ecology, economy, things like that. And I think as soon as I started working on those first hybrids, on the early KERS systems, I was at Renault at that time and we were doing a lot of work uh, on, on the powertrain. It wasn't just left with the, the engine department. I soon realised that actually you had a perfect marriage because the internal combustion engine is a, it, a marvellous device. It's been developed very well with a lot of money put in develop to, to its development for over 100 years. And it's arrived at a state where it is A, quite sophisticated, B, quite efficient, I'm going to say that guardedly, um, economical to produce, etc., etc. But it has a lot of drawbacks. You know, uh, the only reason you've got a gearbox in your car is because the internal combustion engine isn't actually very good at producing torque. You, know, you have to run it very fast to produce torque. An electric motor, on the other hand, is marvellous. Maximum torque at zero speed. So, and it, But it loses a little bit as you get to the, the sort of higher powers and the power densities, um, particularly in terms of the energy storage, because fuel is is marvelous you know, it's a, it, the chemical energy stored in fuel the specific energy per kilogram of fuel it, it is way beyond anything you can do with batteries capacitors etc but if you marry the two together you sort of get the best of both worlds and it soon became apparent to me when we were working on those early kurs cars that actually i thought that the people who really need to adopt this are not the city car or local car manufacturers, it's the supercar manufacturers, because here you've got the perfect combination. And of course, a few years later, I think all the supercar manufacturers realised that was the case, and you could get this enormous performance uh, from a hybrid powertrain. Do you, th do you wish Formula One had been perhaps a little faster to react? Because in comparison with other things, I mean, British touring cars were experimenting with biofuels and LPG in the past, Le Mans, we've seen biofuels, diesels, all sorts of... Do you think Formula One was, was a little bit slow to react in comparison with other categories? I think Formula One is quite conservative. Um, and I think that's, you know, maybe reflects the age of the management and a few things like that. Uh, however, we did look at biofuels and we looked at them quite a lot. Uh, and indeed, if you remember in those days, the, the in fact still... Uh, there is a reasonable biofuel content in the race fuels. But to go totally biofuel was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I was very pleased that we didn't do it. And I argued very, very strongly against a, um, a faction that did want to go biofuel. But the first generation biofuels were actually socially irresponsible. There is absolutely no doubt about it. The the whole way of producing those biofuels was wrong. Uh, it was taking up land space that, you know, and food sources, etc. It was the wrong thing to do. Now, of course, the second generation biofuels, which were just coming on stream then, and in fact, I think some were used in the mall, um, a different matter. But I think still, you know, now we look, what, 10, 12 years later, uh, I think that it... I think it was justified, my, my opposition to it, because I think everyone has seen now that the, the first-generation biofuels were actually a really bad thing. Um, 
Simon mentioned that Le Mans and World Endurance Championship, and obviously there's there's lots of different ways to get to the same um, solution, you know, to get to the same checkered flag. Formula One has obviously been the, the topic of a budget cap and trying to keep costs in check has been has come up time and time again. But the World Endurance Championship seems to manage that to a certain level. Why can't Formula One manage a similar model? Why? You know, I think it could if the if the willing was there. Uh, I think it's quite impressive um, with the WEC cars. Uh, they they went to a hybridisation program at pretty well the same time as us, um, without so much publicity around it. But actually, it was it was very interesting because it was a much more open set of rules. And of course, we saw quite different solutions from Toyota and, and Audi and, and Porsche. Uh, and that, I, think that was, I think that was a really good thing because they had got the equivalence about right. You know, the, Toyota, Audi, Porsche, who was going to win? You didn't know. There wasn't a, a sort of walkover. Um, and they did seem to get that, that equivalence correct. Now, in Formula One, we didn't actually even look at any form of equivalence. So there's a very, very prescriptive set of rules for the power unit. Uh, and Article 5 now, um, together with some of the, the technical directives that um, discuss how you control the electronics, etc., really do lead you to one design of engine. I mean, it, it very clearly leads you to, to a V6. Uh, it has clear cylinder dimensions, etc., etc., and so you're not going to get that diversity that the, you had in Le Mans. I think it's great the, device, the diversity in Le Mans. I think the whole uh, encouragement that uh, that Le Mans gives to innovation is fabulous. In Formula One, we're very very nervous of it. I think uh, I, I guess the trouble is that we are so commercial. Is there a manufacturer out there who has the courage to go a different way? Uh, and I'm not sure there is. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, something we worked out actually yesterday, um, I think this is your eighth motorsport podcast. Um, it's, it's, it goes some way to, it, so there's, I think a couple of other people have been in twice, but it goes in some way to <laughs> how, how well you've actually, um, I think that's almost more podcasts than you've done, Simon. And I've done. Must mean um, I have very little to do, I guess. <laughs> no, it's, it's, so it goes some way to, to uh, explaining just how good you are at um, explaining very technical issues in a, in a way that even I can understand, which um, is, is, is quite, quite a challenge. I want to talk a little bit about this year and, and Williams's performance and, and what you're thinking about for next year. Um, I just wanted to touch on Ross Braun and the the talk of him taking over the sort of the future direction of the sport because that's exactly what we've just been talking about. Um, I, apparently, it is agreed, but the, obviously the sale of Formula One needs to go through, which it hasn't yet. Um, if this happens, good thing for Formula One having someone like Ross on board to helping direction of the of the sport. Absolutely, and I I, I think you know. Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about what, what's wrong with Formula One and the rulemaking process, the knee-jerk reactions, the lack of research, etc. But I think this is an excellent first step. Uh, but I do think it's a first step. Uh, Ross is a, a really good guy. I've worked with him for a long while. Immense respect for him. Um, you know, he's a, he's a good thinker. He, he's logical. Uh, he's not scared to form opinions, he's not scared to fight for his opinions. Um, but I don't think he can do it alone. 
uh, and I really think what we need to do is set up a uh, something rather like the technical working group, but it needs to be um, separated from the teams. Now, by all means, listen to the teams, get opinions. I have nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, particularly in sporting matters. But you must have a level of impartiality, uh, and you need to have people who you can trust. You know. It, it's like government, isn't it? No. Do we really want a referendum for, for everything that's going on? You know, we, we don't seem to have done very well in this country already <laughs> with uh, that, uh, that way of government. And yet in Formula One, we, we have a referendum every few weeks about what are we going to do about qualifying? What are we going to do about this regulation, that regulation? It's not the way forward. Get good people in there, fund them. Because, you know, we need to do research. We're talking about overtaking. The reason no one knows is because the work hasn't been done. Throw some money at it, put it in a wind tunnel. You know, you can go over to Toyota in Germany and hire one of their wind tunnels. You can put together a program and you can start to understand what, what really matters. And then you'll improve the sport. So I think Ross coming in is a, is a great thing. Um, but I hope that it, it, it's not just in isolation. Because, you know... There are a lot of people who do know what's going on, and, and we had a great example at the beginning of this year, which I hope people have forgotten about, but the, the qualifying. It, it seems I mean, like it a distant a, memory now, actually. It, it does, and it, <laughs> in and a good it's, way. It's best left as a distant memory, but, but it was so sad because when that, that was proposed through the, the strategy group, and the minute it came to the teams, you know, we looked at it for about 15 minutes and said, OK, well, this is what will happen. Yeah, it was very obvious. There would be no cars running at the end of each qualifying session. It, it, you know, it didn't take a brain surgeon to, to figure it out. And yet, no one listened. So, so what you need is, you know, I'm not advocating that the teams produce the rules, but you need people who have operational acumen, you know, who, who know how you go racing, who know how you exploit rules, who read a set of rules and say, right, this is how we, we get the best out of it. Uh, and Ross is good at that, you know. Ross has been exploiting the rules for as long as I have. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, moving on to to this year and the Williams performance, you're obviously still uh, very much in the season, and and the final championship standings are not decided yet. How would you rate Williams's performance this year? Because obviously, from the outside, it looked like Williams was stronger last year, um, certainly closer to the front. Well, what are your I, I think from the inside it looks that way too, unfortunately. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, I didn't want to be too bold, Pat. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're looking we're looking at the same picture, so we can't see two different views of it. Um, I, I think it's disappointing, um, but I, I would qualify that by saying, you know, we really have punched above our weight for the last couple of years, and two third places in a in a closely fought world championship beating teams with uh, two and a half, even three times our budget in, uh, in 2014, um, two, two and a half times our budget in 2015, um, you know, is not to be, to be sneered at. Now, of course, we want to keep it going like that, but, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a tall order to keep that level of performance up. Now, I think this year uh, I made some decisions quite early on that with the changes to the 2017 regulations we needed to spend a lot of time on them um, we're limited in how much wind tunnel work we can do and of course most of the performance of the 2017 cars is going to come from from aerodynamics that's where the big changes are and indeed that's where the performance comes from anyway 
In the early days of working with a new set of regulations, you get a, a very steep learning curve. You, you put a lot of performance on um, per run in the wind tunnel. We're all limited to 65 runs a week. Uh, and that's actually quite different to when we did our last change in 2014, which is our last sort of big aerodynamic change, where the 2014 cars started effectively unlimited. Um, we were running tunnels 24-7. Um, but even actually uh, when we went to uh, what was called the 80-80 rules, we could, we could do uh, 80 runs a, a week. Um, we were still, you know, that was, that was stretching the wind tunnels anyway. Now we're down to 65. Uh, it's quite a lot more difficult. And so you have to make a decision. Am I going to uh, stop w development on the current car early while I'm working on a relatively flat part of the, the development curve um, and start on a very steep part of next year's curve or am I going to keep fighting my way in the championship? So we, uh, and it's not something you can decide based on the results of the last race. You know, it's a, it's a strategic decision, it's not a tactical decision. And so I took that strategic decision quite early on that we would have a very clearly defined program on our current car and then we'd start work on next year's car. Now, I think it's coincidental and perhaps a bit unfortunate that that, that program that we, we did for development on this year's car wasn't as productive as it normally has been. So it wasn't as productive as the uh, development programs for the 14 car which had been particularly good or the 15 car which had been about average and you know it kept us uh, fighting to the end and th this year it, it didn't it wasn't as good we have fallen away from Mercedes uh, who we take as our, our sort of benchmark you know that's the development standard we want to try and keep up with uh, and then of course it's been compounded by the fact that Force India actually had the reverse happen and they, they've done a very very good development job I, I think they probably haven't done any more than we have they've just done it more successfully so it's left us in a position where um, fourth in the championship I won't say it was a target we never have a target like that but it was probably what we were budgeting on put it that way um, but you know with Force India coming up uh, having done a really great job this year and they're, they're fighting us um, yeah we, we could be fifth we, we're we're still fighting, but um, yeah. I, I imagine there must be very healthy respect between yourselves and Force India. Force India doesn't have Williams's F1 pedigree in terms of past glory and stuff, but the pair of you are both punching well above your weight in terms of consistency of results. Um, I mean, what's what's the relationship be like between the two of you? I think it's good. Uh, we certainly have respect. I mean, I, I have respect for all our competitors. Believe me, they're they're, they're all pretty good out there. Um, yeah, Force India. I mean, uh, I think we do have a, a close bond because we are independent teams uh, and therefore politically we're fighting for many of the same things. Uh, and I think we know the difficulties that each one of us faces. Um, so, yeah, and apart from the fact that actually there's some damn good people in Force India as well. I like them. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you took an early strategic decision to switch focus or, or to begin focusing on the... Uh, on next year's car. Um, w when was that that you made that decision? Uh, at what point in the season? Uh, it was pre-season. So it was before we'd actually started. We'd, we'd laid out our, our stall, if you like, for, for 2016. Uh, 
power, obviously, you know, it's, it's not a public forum we're on and no one's really listening. Um, would I be safe to put, uh, <laughs> put a tenor on, on Williams winning a few races next year? I don't encourage betting. You know, it's a terrible <laughs> thing. Ne neither do I, because I always <laughs> seem to lose them. <laughs> um, now, I think now's a good time to talk about the Dewar Trophy and, and the Sims Medal. Um, the Dewar Trophy was obviously uh, given to the club in 1904 by Sir Thomas Dewar, the MP, and it is awarded for outstanding British technical achievement in the automotive industry. Uh, the Sims Medal, uh, it's uh, was um, is, a, is a similar thing. It sort of sits alongside, doesn't it? And it the, does. the winners... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This year, the Dewar Trophy was Gordon Murray Design, and then the Sims Medal was awarded to Mr. Hugo Spowers um, and the team at River Simple. Um, something we discovered, what I discovered through Joe, um, Hugo Spaz was a member of the Dangerous Sports Club at university, and he undertook the first head-first bungee jump, which um, is an interesting one. Although there, there, isn't, there, are, there are some tribes out there in the world that have been doing bungee jumps for, for many centuries. Anyway, he is also someone who has gone down a St. Moritz ski slope with a grand piano fitted with skis. Who knew? Well, 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 why also, wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I know. <laughs> and he also <laughs> built a Formula Ford car in the early 80s called the Prowess, an anagram of his surname. With a canopy. With a canopy, yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, Pat, what's, what are, what's the criteria for these two awards? Um, and I should say, these are really are the two most prestigious awards in, in engineering. Um, and what's the criteria, and why did, why did you select the winners um, well, this year? Yes, yeah, so I've, I've sat on the committee now for several years and uh, it's a great privilege to be asked to be on the committee uh, because we do look at some very interesting things. Um, it has to be British, now we're looking at British engineering achievement in the automotive field and with the Dewar Trophy it is just that, we're looking at the, the engineering side of it. Um, so you know, past winners have included Ford Motor Company for the that marvellous little three-cylinder engine a, a few years ago. Um, Mercedes HPP for the, the Formula One power unit. Uh, so we're looking, you know, at that that proven technology. So we're, we're, we're looking not at ideas, not at concepts. We're looking at things that have been actually brought into the marketplace. Now, not necessarily into mass production like the 
the uh, EcoBoost engine, um, but something that has proven that it can stand on its own two feet and it is innovative. The Sims medal is, is quite different because we have a, a slightly broader remit with that and we, we can look at the sort of uh, entrepreneurship of, of, of the, the, the person. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a company. We can, we can look at someone who's doing something that we feel uh, should be recognised. And um, it's great. You know, we, we talk to these people, we visit their companies, we look at the, the, the technology that they're employing. Um, I learn from it all the time. Uh, you know, I, I don't just have a passion for motorsport, I have a passion for engineering and th this allows me to indulge my passion away from motorsport, which is a really great thing. So the, the Dewar Trophy was, as I said, awarded to Gordon Murray Design, but it was spe specifically for his iStream chassis concept and also the Ox all-terrain vehicle, which is this incredible sort of all-terrain vehicle that is that is comes flat-packed. Um, what what sort of um, attracted you to? Well, I, I think two? we we'd actually been watching Gordon for a few years because we with the Dewar Trophy, as I said, we do need to see it get to a level of maturity. Uh, something where we believe, you know, it really is going to fly, it is going to um, be mainstream. So we've been watching what, what Gordon had been doing, actually with the iStream particularly. Um, and it was sort of, for a few years, it's been on the cusp, we've discussed it every year. But we really felt this year that the whole thing um, had got to a point where we said, yes, okay, we, we are now confident this has got to a, a technology readiness level that we feel comfortable to, to make the award. And I'm quite sure, well, in fact, I, I know that we're going to see the iStream um, technology employed in a, a low production volume, low volume production car quite soon. And uh, I, you know, I think Gordon's always been a great innovator from his days in, in motorsport. Uh, and he's carried that innovation through into, into mainstream now. It, it, it is worth mentioning that actually the club doesn't award the Dewar Trophy and Sims Medal every year. It's not a given. That's correct. It, it has to be. There has to be something out there that's, that's worthy of both of them. Um, the the Sims Medal, as I said, went to Hugo Spowers and the team at River Simple, um, and that's for their development of the Rasa hydrogen fuel cell range extended electric car. You were saying earlier that there's you look at more sort of the, the business behind it and things. Um, what was what was the, the winning, well, I th winning I thing there for you? There were two things there. And, and in our final judging meeting, um, I think I sort of summed it up by, by saying, let's sort of cast our minds forward 20 years and have a look at what's in the car park. Is it going to be the, the River Simple type of vehicle? And I think we all agreed it probably was. Uh, it's a very, very interesting concept. Um, They've put it together well. The engineering is interesting. Um, mixture of fuel cell, electric, um, capacitor, storage with battery storage, all, all the things that I believe we're going to see in the, uh, the sort of electric vehicles of the future. But then on top of that, there was such an interesting business concept that you would never actually own the car, you'd always lease it. Uh, and I think it, it was a, it's a very bold idea and the more I think we all thought about it, the more we thought, well actually that does make a lot of sense. So um, there was great engineering there and there was also a, an interesting business concept and 
it was out of the ordinary and that's what the sims medal is about it's you know it's about things that are out of the ordinary not crazy Absolutely not crazy. But not not sort of piano down a ski slope crazy. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, no, lateral thinking. Um, but, uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's, they, they have now been awarded, uh, which seems strange saying that before the actual the, the award ceremony today at lunch. Um, but there is lots of information on the club's website if you'd like to know more about the history of them and also past winners as well. Um, we we're sort of approaching just after the halfway mark and we've got loads of questions on your history and history of Formula One and things. Um, they're going to come out sort of quite randomly, as these readers' questions sometimes do. Um, but I thought I'd start with um, someone you may know, uh, Karun Chantok, who has uh, actually tweeted in a question. And it's a similar question that Ibra Malik has also um, asked about. Uh, he's saying, do you feel, um, this is Silverstone 1994, Damon Hill drove those formation laps slower than usual, perhaps believing it would interrupt Michael's start procedure, or was it purely just Michael's gamesmanship? And Karen's asking why Michael overtook him twice on the on the warm-up lap i think karen hasn't asked that question as many times as i have i've always <laughs> i've always wondered do you know funnily enough I, I actually saw some video of that just a few months ago and i looked at it and i just thought what was he thinking of um now of course you know oh, 94 what an awful year that was but i do feel that the penalty that was applied was incredibly harsh i think that the way the team management handled it was incredibly stupid there were lots of extenuating circumstances and i think that you know we'd seen that sort of thing many times before and we've seen it many times since uh, and yes the rules did say you don't overtake on a on a formation lap but it actually used to happen michael did take it to the extreme i mean you know he might as well have waved a flag saying here here i am um why did he do it? I, was it gamesmanship? No, I, I, I must admit, Karen, I haven't really thought of it that way. I, I, I think it was, you know, this sort of, oh, I want to get my tyres warm, I want to get everything in the in the groove, etc. Damon's driving slowly, well, never mind. But equally, I don't think Damon was driving abnormally slowly or, or deliberately slowly or anything like that. Um, maybe I'm naive, but I think it was just, you know, one of those those things, uh, a sort of perfect storm that came together and gave various people who had political power the ability to um, do things that they might otherwise not have done. So staying on 1994, um, there's a question from Peter here. Um, hello, Pat, a huge fan. Can you please talk about the relative strengths and weaknesses of the 94 Benetton and Williams cars? Where, where was one stronger than the other and, and vice versa? Okay, that's surprisingly easy surprisingly easy question to answer. Actually, um, ninety-four was our, our first year with passive cars. We'd come out of the active era, which had finished at the end of ninety-three, and uh, Rory and I at, at Benetton, I think we'd probably, although we'd taken the active chassis technology quite a long way, um, we probably hadn't exploited the aerodynamics as much as Williams had. But what we did know was that the drivability of aerodynamics, the sensitivities, were extremely important. And when we were going into 94, we knew that we could not run aerodynamics that were as peaky as we'd run in 93. Williams in 93, I think, had been even more peaky than we had, and they continued that into 94. 
So I think that the the 94 Williams, uh, it's a bit like the sort of 83 Tolman, that's going back a long way. A car that, one, if you got it right, if you got the setup right, there was a lot of performance there, but the sweet spot was very narrow. It's a very difficult car to set up. Uh, we had a car at the beginning of that year that, yes, it did have good downforce, but it had really usable downforce. And if you imagine it, that, you know, people think, well, a, a racing car has X newtons of downforce or kilonewtons of downforce. Well, it doesn't. It, it has a very variable amount. You know, it's a it's a cyclic thing. And the downforce is continually going up and down. And in the wind tunnel, what we do is we effectively measure the midpoint of that, that cyclic signal. When a driver is driving, you could argue that what he does is he drives to the bottom that signal. You, you just imagine it like a, if you remember any of your schoolboy maths, a sine wave. You, you're driving to the, the forces at the bottom of that, that sine wave. A good driver, of course, drives a little bit above that and then he catches it and he's, that's how you drive on the limit. Um, but you can have two cars that nominally in a wind tunnel have the same downforce. In other words, the midpoint of this this waveform is the same. But if one of them has a small amplitude, one of them has a big amplitude, you will drive the car with a small amplitude much faster. That's aerodynamic stability. And I think that's something that at the beginning of 94, we, we had o over Williams. Now, of course, after Imola, there were a lot of moves to to slow the cars down. Uh, you know, we added the plank, we cut back the diffusers, we um, shortened the front wing end plates, uh, we even cut holes in the air boxes to reduce engine performance, all sorts of things. And it did destroy a lot of the, the very benign characteristics, aerodynamic characteristics we had on that car. So by the end of the season, I think actually the cars were, were quite similar. And, uh, I'd probably even say that actually the Williams was probably a more performant car than the Benetton by the end of the season. But at the beginning of the season, I think we had understood what was needed of the passive cars better than, than Williams had. Rewinding a little bit back to the 80s, um, there's a question here from William Oldacre. Oldacre. Um, I'd, he personally finds the 1986 Benetton to be one of the most exciting cars in the original Turbo era. Uh, do you have any special recollections from that year? I expect Burger's oh, win in Mexico must so be a fond memory. So many. <laughs> that, that was an animal, that car. It, it was absolutely staggering. Um, in terms of, of horsepower, we, we actually ran that engine latter part of the year, I think at Monza uh, onwards, we ran it with the biggest turbocharger we could find. We had no wastegate on it and the boost that it produced was just a function of how well the turbocharger had been made. So I think we, achie we achieved over five bar of boost. Um, we had, we were never able to measure the power. There was no dynamometer that could measure it. But we, we reckon we had about 1350 horsepower uh, up. Our target had been 1,500. We wanted one brake horsepower per cc, but uh, a megawatt wasn't bad going. So, so it, was, uh, it, it was a fabulous car. And I have so many good memories of it. Um, it was a great year, uh, and it was, it was a very amusing year as well in many ways. So one story that I, I, I'd love to tell people now that I'd never told at the time was that, of course, we had, we had the BMW engine in that, that car, 
But it wasn't a works BMW engine. It was a, an engine built by Heine Marder in, in Switzerland. And Brabham had the works engines. Now, electronics in those days were not as sophisticated as they are now. Far, far from it. And the electronic control unit for the, for the engine was actually, a, it was a huge box. It was about the size of one of these boxes of biscuits that you always buy at Christmas and throw away half empty. Consuming half a day. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you consume it a day. Sorry. Yes, the same one. I just snuck out that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you didn't plug laptops into the things and, and program them across a network or anything like that in those days. You You had something that, I guess people have forgotten about now, which are called E-squared PROMs, electronically erasable program... You could say anything, and I think all of us <laughs> would nod and... Yeah. But what, what you had to do was you had to open up this, this box and you had to take a chip out of it, and then you put it into a little programming device and you program it in hex. You didn't even program it in a, in a, a human-readable format. Now, we were given these boxes and of course, being the sort of person I am, it wasn't long before I had these things apart and I was reading these hex programs and I realised that there were different programs for the qualifying uh, setup and the race setup. So I, I soon started making my own little chips and uh, we used to have enormous performance from this because what, what, I, what I essentially did to start with is I took the qualifying chip and I said, well, I'm sure we can race that. So we, we made that our race chip and then I understood how the ignition and the fuel was changed between the old race chip and the old qualifying chip. And I thought, well, I'll just give it a bit more of that for qualifying. And I always used to keep a standard chip in my pocket because Paul Rocher, who was the head of motorsport at, at BMW, used to often come storming into the pit, say, what are you doing? What do you, I, want, I want your chip. So I'd open up the box and I'd take these special little tweezers that you had for, for taking the chip out. And they, they were quite fiddly. And of course, I always used to drop the chip. I was so clumsy. <laughs> and then out of my pocket would come the other one. I'd say, here you are, Paul. Just, just check this. And he'd look at it and he never understood what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, that was great fun. I enjoyed that, yeah. Fantastic. Um, we've got a question here from Griff Jones um, about the 1984 season uh, and obviously when Senna was, was driving. He was stood down for the Italian GP um, and Pierluigi Martini came in. Um, what's, what was the mood slash opinion within the team about Senna being stood down and then did it alter the dynamic when he came back? Um, why, why was he stood down well for, firstly, for, the, for the listeners? Yes, the reason why he was stood down. We, we had a, a contract with Ayrton um, for the 84 and the 85 seasons. Um, it was Ayrton's first uh, Formula One drive. Uh, but we soon realised, yeah, he was something special, as, as did, I think, everyone else. Um, our contract for 85, I can't remember all the details about it, but, but you know, I think the option was with us, and, and he basically had to drive for us. But unbeknown to us, he went off to talk to Lotus, and he, he signed a contract with them. Um, and Alex Hawkridge, who was the uh, the team principal at the time, was was pretty annoyed about this you know we were we were a struggling little team 84 was very much our, our make or break year um you know the team had started in 81 hadn't even oh, i think we maybe qualified for one race in 81 a couple in 82 we got our first points in 83 
you know, we, we, we were nowhere, and 84 was putting us on the map. Um, ooh, second in Monaco on the podium at, uh, in the UK and Portugal. You know, we, we were starting to get there. So, and, and Ayrton was an important part of that. Uh, I mean, it was a damn good car. It was on the best tyres when we, we switched to the Michelins and everything like that. But Ayrton was an important part of it. So I, I think Alex particularly felt quite affronted when, when Ayrton went off and, and did a deal with Lotus. Um, to the point where he, he felt that he had to make a statement, and that, that statement was to suspend Ayrton for, for breaching his contract. Uh, really difficult thing to do, you know, it, it, it really is a sort of cutting off your nose despite your face type of thing. But um, Alex was adamant, Alex was a boss. Uh, I don't think myself or Rory. I don't think we particularly argued against it. I think you know we were uh, uh, pretty amazed, but but you know it was the same. He was the boss. That's what he did, and I don't think there was anything wrong with it. I think what was very interesting was that Ayrton was absolutely mortified when it happened. But I I really believe to this day that it was actually one of his first real lessons in life, uh, and I think he came back. Uh, after after Monza, certainly you know, I, I had a close relationship with him because I was his race engineer at the time, and and he came back and he he understood he understood why it had happened, and I think he he did then realise that no matter who he was, no matter what his potential was, no matter how talented he was, there were certain standards of behaviour that you you had to abide by, and I, I think he really did appreciate that. It was a hard lesson to learn. Um, and Pierre Luigi Martini in Monza was um, tough weekend, <laughs> to, to say the least. I, I think the dynamic afterwards, I, yes, I think it was different. Uh, I, I think that uh, particularly between Ayrton and Alex, uh, I think myself, I, don't, I, I think I worked as well with Ayrton after that incident as before. Um, but as I say, it was an important lesson in his life, I think, but a tough one for all of us. I, I mean, I watched Ayrton racing in Formula Ford for 2000, Formula 3 a lot, and the signs were pretty clear that he was an exceptional talent, but you're never quite sure. How long was it into the 84 season, it might have been in winter testing in 83, that, I don't know, you guys, you guys kind of woke up, wow, this is what we've got. It's a good question, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd like to say, oh, it was obvious straight away, but I don't think it was, and, and the real reason for that was that his fitness was so poor that actually his race performance was, was definitely compromised. Now, what I could see was that he could do an incredibly quick lap, and he seemed to do it very easily, um, but over a race distance, he, he, he really did struggle, and you may remember, I think in um, I think Carl Army was his first race, and you know, coupled with the altitude and the, uh, the difficulty breathing, everything. I mean, he he passed out at the end of the race. He he really wasn't very fit. I think we soon realised that not only was he actually a damn good driver, but he had a an innate intelligence that I probably hadn't seen before. He had an incredible mechanical feel. He knew what was important. He could 
identify um you, you often get you know with with drivers they they'll they'll complain and complain and complain about a particular corner where they may not have very good handling but that corner may not be very important to lap time yeah certain corners pay lots of dividends classically you know a corner leading onto a straight if you're slow onto the straight you, you lost time all the way along a lot of drivers to my amazement actually don't understand that Ethan understood it absolutely he, he understood every bit of a racetrack and he understood every bit of a race strategy and what he had to do etc so the intelligence I think shone through straight away the ability to drive one fast lap shone through pretty early um, but it took a little while before he became the, the sort of complete driver, I think. It's interesting. We did a uh, Royal Automobile Club talk show with Dick Bennett uh, last month, and he was saying that uh, in the Formula 3 world, he was very much hot property even before the 83 season started, and Eddie Jordan was trying to get hold of him, and obviously uh, Dick eventually signed him for West Surrey Racing, but they saw something special even then. But he said he had a um, his his biggest problem was that he got to halfway through the season and all he had to do was just finish behind Brundle and Dick told him this but he said well I, I don't want to finish second he said no no that's all you need is to win the championship and I said I'm not going to finish second so David said well we've got a bit of a problem here <laughs> um, and, and the rest they say is history but, but there, there's an interesting thing isn't it I think people forget how damn quick Martin was you know Martin yeah. raced him so strongly uh, in Formula 3 that year uh, and of course Martin, as Michael's teammate in the 90s, um, again, one of the strongest teammates Michael's ever had. I, th- I think Martin is often unfairly underrated. I mean, he didn't win any Grand Prix, etc., etc., but he did win the World Sports Car title. But I, I think people forget just how close he was to Senna in F3, to Michael in F1, and to other teammates as well. He, I, mean, I, you know, you, yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. I d- this is actually part two of Griff Jones's question. He recently read your great account of Ayrton and his unusual DNF in the US GP at Dallas. Um, mm. This surely rates as one of the greatest driver excuses ever. Absurd, yet <laughs> apparently true in the end. I'm sure listeners would enjoy hearing this one. I think I probably would as well. So. Yeah, it, it is amazing. Um, so, yes, 84, we did... Uh, Any time we ever raced in Dallas, actually. Uh, amazing experience. It was... Uh, um, it was beginning of July in fact we were there on July the 4th which was you know, quite a day to be in a, a city like Dallas um, a street circuit which was delineated with huge concrete blocks um, reasonable race can't remember all the details of it I think we'd had a reasonable start he'd had a spin he was coming back through the field I can't remember exactly but anyway um, he eventually retired um, and he'd he'd clipped the wall and he clipped the wall enough to I think break a, a CV joint and a, a wheel something like that but certainly it, he couldn't get the car back to the pits so he walked back to the pits um, I was talking to him about you know what had happened he said he'd hit the wall and he, he was really troubled by the fact he'd hit the wall and he eventually said well look I just don't understand why I hit the wall it must have moved <laughs> So I said, yes, of course, certainly, of course it did. Uh, but he went on and on and on about it. So, uh, and after the race, he said, look, I've just got to go and have a look at it. Come with me. So I went with him and we went to the exit of this particular corner. And damn me, it had moved. Um, what had happened was, as I say, the, the circuit was delineated with these, these huge concrete blocks, uh, which were just 
plonked on the on the tarmac. They weren't fastened down in any way. And someone had hit the sort of trailing edge of one of these blocks, brushed it with a tire, and and it had pivoted slightly. So the leading edge was sticking out uh, about five millimeters, maybe at the most, from the preceding block. So it was a little five millimeter step. And Ayrton was driving with such precision that you know he was probably missing that 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 block by about two millimeters or three millimeters or something like that, lap after lap. So when it suddenly moved five millimeters because it had swung round slightly, he hit it, and sure enough, that is what happened. And it, it absolutely amazed me, and it, it was a big lesson to me, actually, in the, the precision that these really really good guys can uh, achieve. It's amazing, isn't it? It does make you realise that there is absolutely no hope for the, for us normal normal people behind the steering wheel of a Formula One car, doesn't it? It's it's similar to the story we we mentioned on a on a talk show podcast before, um, to when Fangio was um, racing uh, Moss in '55 when he when Moss actually won, and he there was one app and he came back and he was quite a long way back all of a sudden, and he had uh, Michael T the photographer um, had actually seen him spun but he was bending down, changing film in his camera. And the reason why Fangio actually spun there was because Michael T had moved. And he, <laughs> that was his breaking point. Wow. So he went to go find him after the race, and he said, you moved. <laughs> a photographer is normally a less reliable breaking well, point well, than a concrete yeah, block, yeah. usually. <laughs> yeah, well, that may well be the case. But um, Can I just... Uh, the, the, you touched upon uh, 84 being a breakthrough camp, or a, you know, make make or break year for uh, Tolman as it was then. Um, but you mentioned not qualifying very much in 81 or 82, but Brands Hatch in 82, you did run second for a while by the dint of the fact you ran half a tank of fuel, I believe. I just wondered, whose who's idea, where, where did that idea come from? Uh, it, it came from Alex Hawkridge, I think. Um, you know, we we were struggling at that time. We, we'd gone, you know, Tolman was the big new British team. Uh, first team to go in with their own turbocharged engine, brought Pirelli into the sport. Um, that really was going to be the next big thing. And, of course, we just bit off so much more than we could, could chew. Um, and it was becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, the team was running out of money, and we really had to, to do something. And rightly or wrongly, that was the decision that was made. Um, worked a little bit better than the calculations showed actually and uh, uh, as you say the car was running second now interesting thing about that is that um i don't know whether you've seen the the, the red bull video the history of pit stops yes I have, and yeah, yeah. Uh, gordon murray who really uh and maybe i'll ask him today but <laughs> the guy who really realized that pit stops were the way to go in formula one and i can't help thinking that 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 incident at brands hatch might have been the trigger that made him think that now we are sadly running out of time so i'm going to there's i'm going to dot around the questions and these to come up to present day and then um there's many different topics um this one's from ali and he's uh he or she is asking whether the best training ground for an engineer with aspirations to be a race engineer is in the junior formula like f3 gp3 lmp3 or lmp2 to gain experience, or should you try and get straight into a Formula One team and get experience there, um, doing an alternative role? Well, you know, race engineering is a very particular uh, 
expertise uh, and it, it does take a a particular type of person to to work trackside you know it's 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 hard work these days in terms of you know doing 21 races doing the testing all that sort of stuff um but i i i really would encourage people to get out and to to interact in lower formulas because a lot of the work of, of a race engineer and and here i'm talking about the classic race engineer rather than the performance engineers etc um a lot of the the skills that they need is dealing with the drivers you know that translation of what the driver is thinking what he needs uh, marrying that together with the data looking at how you set the car up together with your performance engineer etc and while there's much you can do within a formula one team on the modeling side on the simulation side things like that you don't get that interaction uh, with the driver that's so important so i, I really encourage uh, and i get asked this a lot I get a lot of letters asking this very thing. And I really do encourage people to, to get out and get involved with the lower formulas. Um, it's a shame there are so many of them are one-make formulas and you can't do the sort of engineering that I used to do when I was doing that sort of thing. But but nevertheless, that, that interaction with the driver is something you can't get elsewhere. Now, uh, one from Anthony Jenkins here. Um, I, I said we were jumping around. We, we really are jumping around a little bit. Uh, he's wondering about your thoughts on the halo. Um, he finds them a hugely ugly overreaction. Um, wh what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I think they, they are incredibly ugly. Um, there are plenty of ugly racing cars, but we don't need to, to make them any more ugly. More importantly, I think they're only a partial solution. And I would rather we waited until we had a better solution. And, and I think that the canopy, um, which Red Bull put, put so much effort into, I think ultimately it is a better solution. I think one of the things perhaps that we need to, to think about is, is Formula One an open cockpit formula or an open wheel formula? Uh, I think that it needs to remain an open wheel formula, but I don't think it necessarily needs to remain an open cockpit formula. So I think that the, the screen, um, the canopy that the Red Bull developed, which was a, essentially an open-topped sort of aero screen, I don't think perhaps went quite far enough. Uh, and I think if we actually had a, a more fully enclosed canopy, I think it would look quite futuristic. I think it would be quite attractive. And it would be ultimately, certainly from the, the, the flying object point of view, it would certainly be more effective. Now, one of the reasons we, we haven't gone with the halo is that there are so many more things to consider. Uh, and I've often said, you know, if you if you choose what accident you're going to have, you can design a car that will withstand it. But what you actually have to do is you have to design a car that will experience a significant number of different types of accidents, many of which you've never actually envisaged. Uh, and you have to be so careful with those sort of things. So with the halo, a lot of work has gone into it. Um, a very technical risk assessment has been done on it, and it does show that there are still questions to be answered. So while earlier 
in this uh, this recording, I was saying, you know, we, we have a habit of knee-jerking into things. I'm glad to say with the, with the halo, we haven't knee-jerked into it. We continue to research it. Uh, at Williams, we, we've run it with both our drivers in the last two Grand Prix, actually, for, for them to give opinions on visibility and, and things like that. And that, that's actually shown up some interesting things that we hadn't. Uh, anticipated in terms of reflection and peripheral vision and, and things like that. Um, so ultimately, I, I think we probably need to do something like that. We must always push uh, safety forward. Um, I'd like the cars to look a bit more futuristic, and therefore I, I personally think that the the full canopy is the, the better answer. Um, but we need to make sure that we can get out. But, you know, there are plenty of closed cockpit cars that we don't regard as unsafe, in, including, of course, LMP1 and, and things like that. So uh, we, we would then be looking at a Formula 1 car with windscreen wipers, though, wouldn't we? Yeah, and all, all the problems that the LMP1 cars have, you know, of misting up, of the sort of stroboscopic vision that you get uh, when you drive under trees, all these sort of things. But, you know, you, you can race for 24 hours at Le Mans with a, a windscreen in front of you, so you can certainly race for a couple of hours in a Formula 1 car. Fascinating stuff. Now, I'd, I'm say, afraid to say we have um, gone over time, which I, I think we've probably done on pretty much every podcast with you, Pat. So at least we're sticking um, to, to experience. Um, thank you so much for coming in today and talking so eloquently on 2017, the, you know, the current state of play in Formula One, the sports history and the Dewar Trophy and the Sims Medal. It's extremely kind uh, to come in at on time, actually, not early. Um, Joe and Simon, thank you both so much for coming in. I apologise for getting you here an hour and a half early. I'd like to say that the preparation made for a much better talk show, but I think that uh, decision is in the hands of the readers. Thank you also to Alan Hydeford, as always, recording these things so beautifully and turning um, sort of three not very professional men into a sort of an audio programme. Thank you all. We'll be again back again next month, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.